Today, we will be featuring our episode on mental health in the legal profession. Our guest today is Dr. Diana Uchiyama. She is the executive director of the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program. Our hosts for today are myself, Haley Burridge, and Jim Allrutz. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate, where law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are going to start off by giving her the opportunity to tell us a little bit about herself and how she ended up at the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program. Well, thank you first for having me. I appreciate having the opportunity to speak to you. So I started off my career as a attorney. I attended law school in California, um, and then I am a native Illinoisan, and so I came back here uh, because my family was here and just because I have an attachment to the Midwest, and um, I practiced as an assistant public defender in Cook County for over a decade, and most of the time I was at 26 in California litigating felony cases, death penalty eligible murder cases. I was in the sex and violence courtroom for an extended period of time, and um, obviously the drug courts, we were fighting the drug wars at that time. And what I found was that the majority of my clients, if not close to all of them, had significant trauma, uh, significant family dysfunction, mental health problems, substance use issues. And so I worked on a a very high-profile murder case um, where the defendant was a 19-year-old who had had a lifespan of um, family trauma, mental health problems, um, which then morphed into substance use problems. And... um, we were litigating for his life, and it seemed strange to me that at 19, when we got the discovery, there was just a litany of mental health problems that had been unaddressed, and he had was a poor Hispanic youth that hadn't been serviced appropriately. So I thought, what if I could get in earlier and help people to avoid those kind of consequences that result um, through neglect, abandonment, abuse, trauma, And so I decided to pursue my master's and went to Benedictine University. uh, And I got my master's in clinical psychology, which then led to this kind of process of I want to know more, and I don't feel like I'm a finished product. Um, Again, I'm a lifelong learner, and so I decided to pursue my doctorate, and I went to Midwestern University in Downers Grove. It's a small program, very intensive, and it was uh, perfect for me. And that led me to do externships and internships within the prison system, within the juvenile uh, system, and also for the King County Diagnostic Center where I was, um, I was able to hone my assessment and evaluation skills, doing sanity, fitness, uh, sex offender evaluations, and general evaluations for the court to help determine what creates kind of the outcome and why people become the way they do in an effort to determine appropriate sentencing, um, and sometimes for mitigation and sometimes not for mitigation purposes. Uh, I then became the juvenile drug court coordinator, uh, where I worked with youth who were uh, arrested for various crimes related to substance use issues, and we put a lot of uh, work and effort into an alternative court program 
looking at, instead of being punitive and sentencing them, looking at the risk factors and trying to minimize some of the issues that had occurred that led to some of these issues. And then eventually I became the Administrator of Psychological Services in DuPage County, and I worked with a mostly court-mandated population of individuals who had substance use problems, who had mental health problems, domestic violence, anger management problems. And we looked to mitigate the kind of circumstances that led them to criminal activities and sometimes criminal recidivism. And then finally, what led me to the Lawyer's Assistance Program is I came on as a clinician after many of my partners were struggling um, from the court system with substance use issues, family dysfunction, and then a, a very close friend of mine, her brother, suicided. Um, and he was a very prominent attorney. So it made me kind of think back to when I was an attorney. I was surrounded by many people who were dysfunctional, but it was so normal to me. And it made me sad that my own profession was really struggling. And I had the opportunity at this stage in my career to use the skills that I had kind of honed to help the people that had really raised and nurtured me in the law. Great. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about what the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program does. So the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program is a not-for-profit agency. The main office is based at 20 South Clark in the city of Chicago, but we are a statewide organization. We have a board of directors that's appointed by the Supreme Court, so we represent all the regions. We have satellite offices throughout the state. We um, are trying to capture... You know, Illinois has a very concentrated amount of attorneys in the Chicagoland area, so we now have a satellite office in Geneva, uh, Illinois, to capture DeKalb County, Winnebago County, um, and Rockford as well, as well as DuPage and Kane County, because those attorneys will never come downtown for services. We have a satellite office in Park Ridge, Illinois, to kind of capture Lake County, McHenry County as well and all the kind of attorneys who are in the periphery of Chicago. And then we have satellite offices throughout the state of Illinois. And the goal is, the mission is to educate uh, the legal profession about the problems in the law and also to help um, protect the public from attorneys who have mental health and substance use issues that may lead to legal competency issues. We are um, very proud of the fact that we train people to become lap volunteers who are attorneys or judges because we also believe in peer support, kind of that grassroots movement that everyone individually and collectively need to work together to help attorneys, judges, and law students throughout the state of Illinois. Great. Um, so what are some of the common mental health issues that um, attorneys and law students face? The American Bar Association, along with Hazleton, published a study in 2016. They sent out surveys to 19 different states uh, to licensed attorneys and asked them questions related to their mental health and substance use status. And of the attorneys who responded, about 13,000 attorneys responded. 28% of them indicated they had depression. 19% indicated they had anxiety. 23% indicated they were under chronic stress. And about 21 to 28 percent indicated they had substance use problems and most related to alcohol issues, which, you know, when combined, when you have mental health and substance use issues, it can also lead to higher rates of suicide. How do the mental health issues that law students face differ from those of practicing attorneys? 
So there was also studies um, that the ABA conducted where they looked at law students, incoming students, and found them to be more resilient than their peers. But by the end of the first year, the statistics bear out that there was a serious uh, regression in the students and that they um, had similar rates of mental health and substance use issues that attorneys had. So you mentioned some statistics about how, um, with regard to attorneys, mental health issues and substance abuse issues. How does that compare to other professions, not only in Illinois, but throughout the U.S.? Well, I can tell you that the statistics bear out across the country related to lawyers. Okay. I know that the field of law has one of the highest rates of mental health and substance use issues. I can state that with clarity, but related to other professions, I know that the American Medical Association has made wellness a priority, um, and so they obviously have spent significant amounts of effort in minimizing the problems within their profession. So there's definitely a ongoing debate in society about whether or not receiving mental health services is still stigmatized or is it not? But do you feel that within the legal profession specifically, there is still a stigma about receiving mental health treatment? And if so, why that is? So yes, I would say that, but I would like to explain it a little bit further. So the World Health Organization released a study uh, this past year that looked across eight different countries, including the United States, to see when the onset of mental health disorders is. And they found that it was between the ages of 14 and 15, and that one in three college students now suffers from a serious mental health issue. So those are the people who then feed into the professional schools. So the Lawyers Assistance Program exerts a tremendous effort in being available to all the law schools in the state of Illinois based on those statistics and based on the number of people we see at LAP. So we are in every law school in the state of Illinois, that's nine law schools, every month during the school session for office hours. And what that means is is that people who may be struggling with mental health issues or substance use issues or chronic stress have the ability to access LAP while they're in law school so that we can minimize some of the problematic behaviors when a person becomes a lawyer. But that also leads to less stigma for that population and the willingness to access and utilize services through their knowledge of LAP. Now, I can tell you that the under 30 population is the age um, that utilizes LAP the most, but the under 40 population, that comprises the biggest majority of our clients. The gap lies between 40 and 60. And so the question becomes, why is there such a gap? And that population of individuals tends to have the highest level of stigma related to accessing help. They're in the prime of their careers. They're concerned that other people will potentially um, uh, identify them as having mental health and substance use issues. And so that stigma is hard to overcome. And we try to do it through education, through doing CLE events, through acknowledging that although it may be hard, that LAP is there to help them to minimize their suffering. Because the problem is, is that I don't want to have to read the obituaries every day when I ride the train to determine did we lose another professional and how was it that none of us were aware 
that that person was suffering. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that age group between 40 and 60 tends to have the highest suicide rate, particularly among men. Um, we're also seeing an increase in uptick in services for the over 60 population. And that could be due to aging. That could also be due to transitions, to ending their careers and trying to figure out who they are. But I would say that the stigma remains great uh, for many people and that accessing services is very hard. Um, going back to the statistics that I quoted earlier related to the state of wellness in the field of law, what is worse than the statistics is the statistics related to people accessing treatment despite knowing they have a problem. So for those who have identified themselves and self-report, I have a mental health disorder, only 37% seek treatment. Wow. And then when we talk about substance use disorders, only 7% of those who say I have a problem get help for that problem. Wow. That's unbelievable. It's, it's, it's really tragic. And that's also related to access to services. So alcohol is the favorite drug of choice for attorneys by far. Why? Because it's readily available. It's legal. Lawyers love legal things. But it's also at every bar event. It's every social function that liquor, alcohol, becomes kind of threaded into the culture and environment of law. And so when you become reliant on alcohol and lawyers ingest high levels of alcohol. Alcohol is also one of the most dangerous drugs to detox from and often requires hospitalization for medical detox. And so how many of us feel comfortable even taking a vacation, let alone going up to your HR person and saying, you know, I need to take about 30 days off so I can uh, go into the hospital to detox and then go into residential treatment so I can kick my substance use problem. I don't think many people feel comfortable with that, mm -hmm. and the stigma prevents them from accessing services. So you mentioned that the stigma you, you believe is the greatest between those between the ages of 40 and 60. Do you think you mentioned that it has a little bit to do with the fact that they're in the prime of their career, but do you think it also has to do with the, their generation, and is there a difference between uh, men and women, for example? Yes. I mean, the generation um, disparity is, is certainly a big part of it. Uh, the Gen Zs and millennials tend to talk about mental health and substance use problems much more openly and readily. It's not, it doesn't feel like a stigma. Um, even Starbucks announced a plan for mm -hmm. mental health. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, mm -hmm. which is, you know, huge because a lot of their workers are millennials and Gen Zs, and they recognize that that population um, is open about mental health issues, and they're trying to open up the dialogue to make it easier for people to access services and not um, feel that they're going to lose their jobs or ruin their careers if they do need the services. I do think that the baby boomers struggle the most with this concept of imperfection and reaching out for help. Also, there is this concept about us that the longer we're viewed as the problem solvers, the harder it is for us to acknowledge that we actually have a problem and need to ask someone to help us. Oh, and so the longer you kind of view yourself as the one that is the person that everyone comes to, the less likely you are to seek help for yourself because that would have to make you change your identity and to out yourself to people who kind of rely on you for answering their questions. Mm -hmm. 
you mentioned that you think that attorneys, generally speaking, are hesitant to take a vacation, which I agree with, and then also would be more hesitant to go to an HR professional and ask to take time to take care of their mental health or substance abuse issues. What do you think law firms can do differently to help practicing attorneys with their struggles? I think there's a lot of things law firms can do better. I think there is kind of cultural norms. There was a um, someone at Denton's, I think she was either a partner or general counsel, talked about the culture of law and the kind of antiquated ways we still go about practicing law. It's similar to the concept of medical doctors not getting sleep when they're in training and then being required to make life and death decisions. Is that really in the best interests of everyone? It's a question that I think the medical community has explored, and I think it's one the legal community needs to explore, that the billable hour system can place tremendous amounts of stressors on people. Mm -hmm. Some law firms um, place uh, enormous amount of importance on billable hours, but the ability to bill hours as a human being is complicated and often uh, times becomes debilitating for people. So I think if we look at everything, we would have to kind of readjust our expectations of what we think is correct and proper for people in this kind of high-tech, high-stress world that we currently live in that we didn't used to live in in the past. So we know that anxiety disorders are increasing, panic disorders are on the rise, so why is that? And, and sometimes we sometimes have to kind of strip down to the, the basics and say, can we do things better and differently? Are we supposed to be available 24-7 and on weekends? Or is a little bit of downtime encouraged at law firms? And I think that, you know, this hard charging, pulling all-nighters and being available at all times is taking a toll on people in ways that it didn't used to in the past. Do you think technology is partially to blame for that? Because I remember when I was younger, my father would come home from work and there weren't cell phones. And so sometimes, but very rarely, we would get a phone call on our home phone. Um, But otherwise, when he was in the office, he was in the office. And when he came home, he was with us and our family. But now everyone has an iPhone. And so what that means is that you're available at all times to answer phone calls and emails and texts. And so do you think that has contributed to the rise in stress and anxiety and other mental illness issues? Sure, I I definitely feel that. You know, the brain requires a certain amount of respite, right, to recover. And um, interference from blue light and tech issues and Um, always looking at your phone and people now use their phones as alarm clocks and have access to the phones at all time. Uh, People are checking their email. I don't think I ever get through a presentation for one hour where I don't see a host of people in the audiences checking their phone. And there is an addiction level as well, right, where Mm -hmm. we feel like we can't be away from our phone. We lose our ability to kind of be spontaneous. You go to a restaurant and people aren't talking to each other, they're looking at their phones, you know, and you see it with small children, that children are playing on technology, and they set up a little video screen so that the parents can have dinner and the child is entertained. And so I think that if we're looking at the increasing uh, mental health issues, we have to 
recognize that our brain's inability to turn off occasionally and to have those quiet times is most likely contributing to these higher levels of mental health disorders and also sleep impairment because uh, looking at your phone and computer all the time, also the light going into your brain can impact your sleep, which can lead to higher rates of mental health problems. Last year, our editor-in-chief, uh, Matt Doran, conducted an informal survey of our class. I don't remember if it was our whole 1L class or if it was just our section in particular, mm-hmm. asking about mental health and a variety of other topics. And of the people who responded, so not necessarily a representative sample, 90% said that they felt guilty when they took time off from studying. So I guess that sort of lends itself to a question of how much of this is nature versus nurture? How much of these problems is the result of the personality types that are attracted to law school or to being a lawyer? And how much of that comes from being part of the architecture of law school and the legal profession? And I think that's an excellent question. It's kind of the chicken or the egg phenomena, right? So I'm going to answer it in a, in a variety of ways. So I think that people who are drawn to professional schools are built a little different, right? So it, the type B personality is not necessarily the one who aspires to be competitive. And so I think that what attracts people to the field of law Um, are a lot of type A personalities. And I raise my hand, you know, I'm one of them. And while it's a blessing, it's also a curse, right? So um, it's hard to remain flexible. It's hard to delegate as a type A. It's hard to let go of things. And so we create these standards internally that are really hard to achieve as individuals, but also for other people around us. We're also competitive. I remember one day in law school, um, probably six months in, I was looking around. I always sat in the back, and I love looking and observing, which probably leads to why I became a clinical psychologist. But I remember thinking, hmm, there's not that many people that I like in this room. They're so competitive and aggressive sometimes. (laughs) And it was this kind of aha moment that the kind of people who were in my class we're all built the same and not so much a nurturing group of people. It was more like everyone wanted to be number one and everyone was striving for, you know, getting great grades. And and certainly that can contribute to some of the issues. And then I think the kind of what law school does is it increases anxiety disorders because it teaches you to think of what if this happens? And it teaches us to be pessimistic, to think of all the potential horrific outcomes that could potentially impact cases, cases and case law. And so I think if you go in a little bit negative and slightly pessimistic, that increases. And even if you don't, you will, you will kind of move over a little bit to the more pessimistic, higher anxiety kind of driven, along with having those personality traits. And then the adversarial nature of the field of law itself is also problematic because it makes people more aggressive, right? It's a win or lose kind of phenomena. It's an all or nothing that we don't get a lot of accolades for just working hard. It's like, did you win the case or not? Sometimes we uh, get accolades for case law, finding case law that changes the outcome of a case. But that's really not a, a common thing. And it's more like, did you win the motion? Did you not? Did you make money for the client? Did you not? And then 
also the concept of ambiguous endings to cases that there's there's really sometimes no clear winner or loser there's loss on every side and so your clients expectations sometimes you can never meet them so all those factors I think contribute to these um, concepts of I need to do more I'm a perfectionist it's never good enough uh, which leads to high anxiety. Mm-hmm. I did read an article once, this is kind of funny and maybe helps us all, um, that the more intelligent you are, the higher anxiety you have because you can think of all the what-ifs. Mm-hmm. And the more concrete learners, they can't think of all the abstract concepts of what can happen. And so intelligence sometimes goes hand-in-hand hand with anxiety. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I'm going to choose to take that as a relieving thing. Yes. Of, ah, that's a weird anxiety compliment. <laughs> there you go. What do you think law schools can do differently? Because I do think that um, some of the questions that Matt had in his survey were geared towards our final examination format, which I believe is pretty standard amongst all law schools in the United States, where most, if not all of your grade depends on one exam. It's usually a three-hour timed examination on a laptop. And so not only is it, do you know the subject matter, but do you know it faster than all of your peers? And can you write it in a way that's better than your peers? So is there, is there anything that law schools can do, whether it be through teaching in a different style or having a different grade format that you believe can help? I think that's a really great question. It's complicated in that, you know, when I went to law school, the goal was humiliation, and they wanted people... Uh, to drop out who couldn't handle the pressure and the stress. That was kind of the philosophy. Humiliation was a great tool. I don't think many law schools utilize that tool anymore, at least I hope not. And people were encouraged not to pursue the career. I think that what, what we could do better at is vetting people who come into the field of law first and foremost. Not everyone is meant to be a lawyer or a professional, and I think there's, there's a beauty in that, right? Because, you know, sometimes we feel pressured to go to school through our parents or through the expectations of someone else. And, you know, I've seen people who come into law school with significant mental health issues, and my discussion with them is, is that the law school experience will probably increase it unless you work really hard to take care of yourself. But it's hard to take care of yourself when you're under that level of pressure. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a circular discussion. And I think some law schools need to do a better job of vetting people coming in. You know, it's kind of like professional schools and standards need to be set at a a high bar. But um, also that we need to make wellness a priority within the population of law students so that those who do come to law school, who do choose to come to law school, can make mental health a priority. I think we also have to limit access and this culture of alcohol being associated with law school and bar events and school events, because what we're doing is saying that drinking is normal within our profession and therefore encouraged. And why do some law firms have liquor cabinets, right? And why is liquor at every bar event? You know, I think we send mixed messages about wellness, that we know that there's many people in our field who have substance use issues, but we encourage people to drink to excess at some of these events that we sponsor. And we're fearful that people won't attend, and so we create 
opportunities to get together where alcohol is part of the infusion process. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, screening people, uh, making sure they're aware of the pressures they'll be facing, and then really putting an emphasis. Like Loyola, we're giving, the Lawyers Assistance Program is giving Loyola an award this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the law school, I'm not sure if you're aware of that, as one of the law schools who's really implementing uh, significant effort in the wellness movement. And we appreciate that because it's not about just talking about wellness. It's about implementing wellness tactics. They have us come in and you guys have us come in and speak. Mm-hmm. You encourage the office hours. You promote them pretty heavily. I'm sitting here today talking to you, mm-hmm. uh, which I think are all really great movements toward the recognition that we have to start talking about this and not pretending that it's not happening amongst us. And then I think individually and collectively, so we all need to do a better job individually of monitoring the people around us and not being ambivalent about helping people we know might be suffering. And then collectively as institutions like a school or a government agency or a law firm of figuring out how do we create events that allow people to live healthily and how do we create a school that while balancing the needs of the educational standards that they must meet also increases wellness programs within the school and makes that a priority. Yeah, I didn't know that about Loyola, so that's great to hear. But Jim can talk to you a little bit and our listeners about some of the student organizations that he's involved in um, that really helps individuals with that are struggling with anything. And I think that since I came to Loyola, I was surprised in a positive way how helpful not only the the professors are and how friendly my fellow students are, but also all of the deans at the school go out of their way mm-hmm. to make sure that they're available to us. I've never had an issue contacting any of them or having any of them not be willing to help me or any other student at this school. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I hear a lot when I'm talking to friends and especially when I'm talking to people from my hometown. Both of my parents are lawyers, and so they definitely have an expectation of what my experience is going to be based on what my family has been through. And I definitely speak about Loyola and say those same things, that I feel like it's definitely a lot more of a collaborative environment. There's less of the Socratic method designed to, as you said earlier, weed people out and be aggressive for its own sake almost. Mm -hmm. And I've been really pleased with the initiatives that Loyola is taking to try to make a better environment, not just for the school, but for the profession generally. I've also had a couple of professors who have really, really aggressively pushed to be let onto this podcast to talk about (laughs) the efforts that they're making. So we definitely expect to have some more episodes on this topic coming down the pipe. That's fantastic. That makes me happy, you know, because I can tell you that of my generation, um, people would not have talked about their law school experiences being similar to yours. And so those are the changes that are taking place, which is amazing to me. Talking a little bit more about the format of law school exams, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about the bar exam format, which as you're aware is, hasn't changed much in the last um, 50 years and is still a two-day, full-day exam in which you are tested against your peers, all the other individuals that would like to practice in the state of Illinois. Um, But again, it is a high-pressure, timed test environment. Do you think that the bar exam should change? And if if you do believe it should change, do you think that would help 
with some of the mental illness issues that lawyers face today? That's a tough one for me because I think that as professionals, there has to be a screening device Mm -hmm. which indicates whether people are prepared for the practice of law. I had to do a similar screening uh, a similar um, process for becoming licensed as at the doctoral level. I think that, that those tests were initially put into place in an effort to prevent people from practicing who weren't qualified to practice. And I think we can all agree that in our own experience, we sat with people where we had concerns about, oof, you know, I'm not sure they, they're meant to be an attorney or a clinician. And, you know, sometimes people get through the initial screening and application process and get into law school. But I do think, you know, that it's like school testing uh, at the high school level, at the um, grammar school level, that sometimes exceptions need to be made when people have mental health disorders that prevent them from excelling under those kind of extreme and stressful situations. That doesn't minimize their ability to practice. It may mean they need to practice differently or in other areas of law. So I'm not nuanced into any kind of testing criteria that could change how you do it Mm -hmm. um, in order to screen and make sure that the people who go into the profession are adequately prepared and educated to be lawyers. I don't know if that's really an answer, but I think it's complicated in that there there has to be something that every profession has at the medical community has one, the clinical psychology profession has one. Could we do it better? It's possible. I just don't know enough to say. But I think we need to make exceptions for people who struggle with mental health disorders Mm -hmm. um, if they need different kind of circumstances in order to take the test. I think it's definitely fair to say that we don't expect you or anyone to have a magic silver bullet for fixing the bar exam. But I also think that sometimes that conversation can be kind of cut off because people are looking, you know, perfect solution fallacy. If you can't figure out exactly what's wrong with it and make the precise change, then people don't want to do anything. And so having these sorts of conversations and being willing to take more incremental steps, I think is super important. Yeah, I remember. I I don't know if it's changed much. Um, You could only bring certain things into the room. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to go to the bathroom because you only have a certain amount of time, so don't drink a lot before. And then I remember going into the women's bathroom and people just being violently ill in the bathrooms. And I'm like, okay, this isn't the place I want to be because it's actually increasing my stress levels. But the stress was incredible, mm-hmm. and I remember between the the two days, I stayed in a hotel downtown, and I was going to study in between. And I remember coming back to my hotel room and thinking, there is no brain capacity left to prepare for the multiple choice the next day because it's very fatiguing and very draining, and you're inserting data into your brain for months and months, right, that mm-hmm. you have to hold on to and then place onto paper. But I had to do the same thing for my licensing exam as a clinical psychologist as well, the same process of studying. It was a one-day exam, but cramming material into my brain to just kind of get out into a, a format that hopefully allowed me to become a clinical psychologist, and it did. But mm-hmm. again, that stress level was enormous and intense and required an extensive amount of preparation in order to pass. Yeah. I do think the examinations are necessary, but 
I was just curious on your opinion about the stress level, because as you mentioned, um, seeing that some of your peers be ill in the bathroom, I think that the pressure sometimes, it doesn't help, obviously, because I think sometimes people know the material, but they're so overwhelmed and anxious that it's just they're drawing blanks the whole time. So Many, many colleagues of mine uh, who were brilliant people had such high test anxiety they didn't all pass the first time. You know, by, in California, the bar passage rate was low at the time um, I graduated, and I knew many of my peers who had to take it several times, but also had to see someone to help them manage their anxiety, their test anxiety, so they could perform optimally the next time they took it. Mm-hmm. Those are real pressures. I mean, and then, you know, it kind of goes into the field of law is just pressure-packed as well. And you know, that kind of process of going through the school, taking the test, and then going into these high-pressure, high-expectation fields, you know, there's a wear and tear on the soul that eventually takes place. And a lot of people start to engage in maladaptive coping mechanisms in order to kind of manage the overwhelming feelings that they may be experiencing. And we have a high rate of compassion fatigue and burnout in our profession And here's what's an interesting point for me is when I went to professional school as as a master's level clinical psych and doctoral level, we spent a lot of time taking classes on wellness Mm -hmm. and how to remain healthy when dealing with unhealthy people. And I can't recall a single class I ever took in the field of law as a in law school where it was focused on how do you remain intact. Um, while practicing with significant trauma, significant mental health, and significant um, problematic people that we have as clients. And I think that's also part of the problem, Mm -hmm. that we could actually address that in law schools, create programs where we talked about how to remain healthy while practicing law. Yeah, I don't think we have that per se at Loyola, but um, we do have a new class that is uh, mandated for all first-year students called Professional Identity Formation, in which I believe, Jim, aren't you a... Yeah, I'm going to be tutoring in yes, that class this so you year. Can talk a little bit about Yeah, it. Professional Identity Formation is a new program that was born out of some issues that have been occurring related not only to mental health, but also due to a lot of problems within the profession, things related to implicit bias or sometimes explicit bias. Mm -hmm. And so part of the goal of the class is to be training people to have more awareness of their own implicit biases and privilege and things like that. And part of that conversation does involve mental health. We've also had a new initiative that I've also been part of that is based on the community building circle technique. And we've had a number of these community building circles specifically based around mental health or what people do to relax. So sometimes we're looking at it in a very, I wouldn't say scientific way, but in a more formal description of mental health and what people are doing. And sometimes we're doing it informally. So the programming is beginning to exist, but it's definitely not in the same way as a class would be where you're really drilling into that sort of information and taking a lot more time over the course of a semester as opposed to events that, even if they're semi-recurring programming, aren't the same thing as I need to show up for this and receive a grade in order to learn how to take care of myself. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, I spoke, I, I often speak to incoming law school students who are there on the first day of orientation. And, you know, they have, 
it's almost kind of humorous to them because they can't imagine that the next year will cause them so much distress. And so I think we could do a better job of educating people about the stressors before they even come in, just mm-hmm. to say, you know, a lot of people, this is this is overwhelming for people. And so you have, really have to be ready to do this because it's a kind of a buckle your seatbelt for the next three years kind of experience, right? And so I think really being honest about that is something that's important as well. And I, I really love that out-of-the-box thinking of trying to recreate things um, to impact people in positive ways. I think that's part of what we all need to do a little bit better. Instead of doing the same old thing we've always done with the same old results. And and I, I want to say that, you know, the, the study from the ABA Hazleton from 2016, there was a study conducted in the state of Washington in 1980, which had similar problem areas in the field of law related to, to depression and uh, substance use. Um, and so those numbers really haven't changed in 39 years. So that kind of says, hmm, what happened and why haven't we done anything to kind of minimize the risk? Now, we did see an increase in anxiety disorders, which I do think is related to the tech issues and the always being, um, always needing to be available and check your phone and and be um, even on weekends and evenings and on the train and on the bus. And, you know, we're always looking at our phones. And, and so the culture also becomes one of instant gratification. And, and also we see problematic behaviors when you have downtime, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Because people don't know how to not use phones and computers just to give their brains and bodies a rest. Yeah. I, I feel very called out right now, but like in a good, healthy way. <laughs> like, yeah, I should remember this and improve yeah. from this. I think we all need to. It's not just you. It's all of us, mm-hmm. right? I I tell my kids all the time, and they laugh at me, I put my phone in the charger in the kitchen at 9 o'clock, and I leave it there. I don't use it as my alarm clock. I don't look at it. I still have a landline, but that's for a reason if there is an emergency. But I don't need to have my phone next to me at my bedside so that I have this tendency to look at it. If it's near you, you will look. That's why people text and drive, right? Mm -hmm. Because they have the opportunity to access it. And the minute we access it, it's hard not to use it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a good point. I didn't think about that. So I wanted to go back to, you mentioned compassion fatigue Mm -hmm. and um, burnout. I would like to think I understand what those things are, but I don't have an in-depth understanding of them. And I think many of our listeners would be curious to learn more about that. Would you be able to speak about that? Sure, absolutely. So compassion fatigue is kind of the, the wearing out of what I like to coin the soul, that we set kind of these expectations for ourselves. Um, We go into the work that we do, not recognizing that it can have an impact on us. And so people who tend to be more compassionate and empathic tend to have higher levels of compassion fatigue because everything becomes personal to them. And then people who have a history of trauma, um, and when working with people who have trauma, also develop higher levels of compassion fatigue because it's it, it's cutting close to who they are and what they know. And so recognizing who we are, people with high anxiety issues when working in high stress environments develop compassion fatigue as well. And it's kind of like running empty and then not recognizing it and then slowly kind of getting more irritable. First, you're kind of zealot about everything you do and 
you're passionate, but you get worn out by the caseload, the process, the people, and then it leads to irritability and sometimes isolation and then maladaptive coping mechanisms to kind of manage the feelings that you have and uh, just your low energy levels. And then burnout, it was just recognized by the World Health Organization um, as actually a mental health disorder. So I think that's a, a step in the right direction. But basically burnout is internal and external expectations where you feel you can never meet them, right? So type A perfectionists, we set really high standards for ourselves, right? We're always striving for something. We're, we're afraid of failing. We're just, there's always something that we're trying to get to. And so we have these kind of, if I don't win a case, then I'm not doing a good job. Well, it doesn't always mean you're not doing a good job. It just means you didn't win the case, whether the case law was against you or not. And then the expectations that the uh, organization sets for us may be unreasonable. So we both set unreasonable standards. And then, again, the tank runs empty, and we just feel like we can never meet them. And so it leads to higher levels of um, mental health, physical functioning problems, and substance use issues because you have to do something to manage those feelings. And so that's what happens. Do you feel that these issues translate into attorneys' personal relationships, whether it be with their partner or friends or relatives or, or whatever? Oh, my gosh, yes. I, you know, it's interesting. It, you see a legacy of loss along the way. It's really, really tragic. Um, there's broken up relationships, broken up marriages, infidelity. I call it the, you know, um, sexing around concept of, you know, sometimes sex becomes a relief. Um, and so you see, um, like I said, higher levels of infidelity, broken relationships, communication difficulties. So over time, people tend to withdraw from the people who support them the most because they're just worn out. And so, um, addiction increases, um, suicidal behavior can increase, right? or even suicidal thinking. The thing that has been really, really shocking for me, and, and you have to imagine, I was a public defender for over a decade, and I've worked in the forensic field. So you would think that the people who come from intergenerational dysfunction and trauma and poverty and neglect, I would be more surprised at some of the things I saw there. But actually, this field of problem-solving type A competitive people, I see so many people who are passively suicidal or actively suicidal that I never saw in the forensic world. And so then that goes with, why is that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that someone can get to the point where they wish they never woke up or they're planning their death, that's really quite problematic. And also means we're doing a really bad job monitoring ourselves and those around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a question about law firm staff. I used to be a recruiting coordinator at a big law firm in Chicago, and there was recently a article that came out about a high-level executive at a big law firm in Chicago that recently committed suicide. Mm. So often these individuals, like myself at the time, haven't been through law school and they're not attorneys. However, we are seeing the same effects that the law firm environment has on individuals that might not be, I wouldn't say necessarily type 
not they're not type A. However, they haven't gone through law school and they're not practicing attorneys. So can you tell me a little bit about that and why you think that those individuals are still struggling with some of the issues that law students and practicing attorneys are struggling with? You know, we lose too many people to suicide. And then this kind of burying of, of the concept of we don't talk about it once it happens. We almost hush-hush it, and we don't want to attribute it to the practice or the culture within the law firm. Instead of kind of doing a retrospective study to say, what happened and how did we get to this point with this practitioner? How did we lose this person? You know, I do a lot of CLEs throughout the state of Illinois, and I do it because every time I do it, I know that there's people who are struggling in the audience. And my hope is, is that if they see the face of LAP, they may get brave enough to kind of outreach to us if they're struggling. And so I always talk to people as if I know someone out there needs us. And so, uh, and that bears true at most CLE events that I attend. By the time I get back, I have an email, a phone call, a text. I always give people my professional cell phone number so that they can reach me. So I think that staff, they need to be trained just like everyone else. And it's really, we're doing a disservice because sometimes they see things that as attorneys we're not willing to kind of talk about or out or that we have normalized because we may ourselves be engaging some of those behaviors. Uh, So one of our presentations is called Recognizing, Understanding, and Referring a Client or a Colleague in Need. And that is, I think, one of the best tools where we teach people to recognize symptoms of depression, symptoms of anxiety, symptoms of suicidality, symptoms of cognitive decline. And it's very well suited to the people who work with attorneys as well because, again, the more eyes we have, the better we are at identifying people who may need our help so that suicide doesn't become the option for that person. And I think the other thing is it it makes you more comfortable addressing these issues rather than turning a blind eye, which we often do, because we feel uncomfortable engaging in a conversation with someone who might be struggling as well. So we give you the tools to be able to ask the questions and then the knowledge to know what to do if you determine someone might be suicidal or contemplating suicide. Uh, Yes, and make sure that they're, as you've discussed before, not ashamed or afraid of asking for help when they need it. Right, because again, remember, it's really hard for someone who's prominent or esteemed or the problem solver to ask for help because that changes who they think of how they think of themselves and how they think others may view them yeah i agree with that Mm -hmm. so there has been some uh, law firm big law firms in chicago and throughout the u.s i believe kirkland and ellis is one of them in which they have a dedicated professional now that's working for them Um, i'm not sure exactly what his or her title is. However, I do, I did notice that as a new thing. How do you think having a dedicated professional in a big law firm environment, which is extremely stressful, will help attorneys and staff member in those environment? It's funny you ask. It's the title for Kirkland Analysis is the Director of Wellbeing. Okay. And I was just with the Director of Wellbeing. Um, Kirkland Analysis asked me to do a retreat in Montauk, New York, on Monday and Tuesday. Okay. Yeah, that's right. On mindfulness, and so. 
I guess my answer would be it's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. That if we prioritize wellness, if we create programs within the institution, it is um, definitely something that can increase outreach and access to help, right? So the more opportunities and the more we engage in dialogue about well-being, the better off we all are, right? That's just on a national forum, on an international forum, on a small forum that we need to talk about it. We need to not feel ashamed that if one in three of us is struggling, so that means one of us in the room has had significant issues with mental health and or substance use issues, Mm -hmm. then that's not an anomaly anymore. That's more normal than not. And so I think that's a wonderful thing. The question then becomes, will they utilize it um, if they are struggling within their profession in their own agency? And that's the question we can't really um, capture at this moment because these are new movements within the field. But I think it is such a positive thing. But I forgot to mention that LAP, um, the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program, is confidential with immunity which means we are like the Las Vegas of the law. You come to us, we can't say a word, it stays there unless you want us to tell someone. And so a lot of people will access us instead of their own HR or EAP because of that confidentiality and immunity piece. And so I think having both options, if you want to use the HR within your or the Director of Wellbeing who can provide you access to services, that's a great thing because if they won't go there, then hopefully they'll come to LAP. And I think as the director of well-being, you know, we form a close relationship so that she can promote LAP within the organization to capture those who are too afraid to go to her. So there's not the same amount of confidentiality if those individuals decided to go to her as they would get if they went to LAP? Well, I can't speak of how it's set up, but mm-hmm. the problem becomes that you know, I think most people would tell you that if you go to your HR department, it's no longer a confidential thing because you're asking for help for something. Mm-hmm. How it's set up at Kirkland, I wouldn't be able to answer that. I can only answer that with us. We're not associated with any firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Supreme Court under Rule 1.6 has allowed for confidentiality with immunity under the state lab. And, I, you know, the one thing I would put in at the end is, you know, I... I tell people all the time, if you are the person that we're talking about that's struggling, don't be afraid to access LAP for help. That, you know, I, I said this the other day to someone, we're like a family of Labrador retrievers that we're, we will help you, we will help you figure it out, and then we'll embrace you and you'll become part of the LAP family and we'll navigate you through the worst times of your life. And that you don't have to suffer alone and in silence. That LAP is really here to help you in any way possible. And if we can help you, we'll find someone who can. Well, Dr. Diana Uchiyama, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a privilege to interview you and learn about your career at the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program. How can our listeners contact the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program? Uh, So if you go on, you can obviously Google. I have a LinkedIn page under my name. Um, I post articles about mental health and substance use issues, so that's a first way. Uh, We have a Get Help line, so if you go on our, you can send us an anonymous email. The main line to our Chicago office is 312-726-6607. 
thank you again for coming and taking some of your time to speak with Jim and I today, but I'm so excited that our listeners, whether they be law students or practicing attorneys, can hear this and hopefully go to LAP and seek assistance when they need it. Because as you mentioned, a lot of us struggle with it, and it's like any other health issue. Um, you really can't do it alone. You need to seek assistance. Yeah, and, and we all are human sufferers, but the extent of our suffering is different, and it's different at different times in our life, that not one amongst us has not seen or felt terrible, right? Mm-hmm. right? You know people who may be suffering, you may be suffering, but you know what, um, we're all, the human experience is, is difficult. And, um, you know, if you're in a difficult spot, just know that there's someone there to help you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real honor. Thank you. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thank you again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Allrutz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman. And our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thank you to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing us the resources and support to make this show possible. And thank you to our predecessors, the Dialogue De Novo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.